0: I'm here today with Marie Powell, writer, journalist, editor and author of educational books for children and novels for young adults, including her latest, The Sword and Sorcery Epic, set in a mythical Wales, called Last of the Gifted. So without further ado, Marie, welcome to the show. Thank you. Well,
1: I'm glad to be here.
0: (laughs) So um, you do sound Canadian, but um, whereabouts exactly are you?
1: Well, I'm smack in the middle of Canada, uh, Regina, okay. Saskatchewan, which is Treaty Four territory. Um, here in what does that and mean? uh, uh, it means um, all right. So I'm I'm right in the middle of Canada, uh, mm-hmm. which is Treaty Four territory, which means it's the ancestral lands of the Cree, uh, Soto, Dene, Lakota, Dakota, and Nakota peoples, and the homeland of the Métis. So,
0: um, okay,
1: Regina, Saskatchewan.
0: Alright, so so Treaty 4 is a like a treaty made with those people or?
1: Well yeah, there are 10 treaties in Canada and um, okay. this happens to be the one that covers this particular piece of territory. I think there are right. five treaties that cover the different areas of Saskatchewan for uh, different nations.
0: Okay, so. Because right, yeah. Canada, Canada is unimaginably vast, right?
1: Yeah, pretty much, <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> so if you're snuffling in the middle of it, you're like a thousand miles from anywhere else
1: that's right actually really high above sea level but very 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 flat in regina it's a okay. it was a former glacial lake so it's wow. literally pretty flat around here farther but i mean saskatchewan has three different i think three different climactic zones and a bunch of different landscape so we have forests in the north we have Um, an old growth forest, Cypress Hills Mm. in the east, you know, we have some bad lands, you name it, we've got
0: it (laughs) Yeah, I remember once um, a a friend telling me that some relatives of his were visiting Canada from Europe and they were going to um, somewhere in the east like Toronto or Ontario Mm. right, and he's over on the west coast and they were like well, so are you going to come and see us when we're in this (laughs) Place where we're going yeah exactly that's the canadian ritual now to a european to a european that makes sense if you go all the way from canada to say i don't know france and you're in some bit of france it's not so unreasonable for somebody to cross france to come and see if their family I, empty, you know it's, it's
1: hard for me to believe that like really but, but, but i know he, but he,
0: he pointed out that when they got to where they were going they were less than halfway to where he actually lived <laughs> so, so the trip from somewhere in Europe to Canada was less than half the distance from that bit in Canada to the other bit in Canada where to he The other did. bit in
1: Canada, yeah. To the yeah. Big, two, two, two major cities. Well, there's four major cities, but the Toronto and Vancouver definitely are two of them. And uh, yeah, they're they're half a world away. <laughs> <So> <laughs> five or six time zones in there. <laughs>
0: yeah It's nuts. Um, okay, so um, when I was researching for this interview. I sort of, I couldn't quite put my finger on what exactly it is you do for a living because there's lots and lots <laughs> of different things and I have the same problem right because when people ask me what do you do for a living I have to decide whether or not I want a conversation and I have like short answers for when I don't want a conversation and I have the more open-ended more accurate answer for when it's okay to spend the next 10 minutes explaining what I actually do so what do you say when somebody asks you what you do for a living?
1: I think that's a really interesting question because I have learned that I need to say I'm a writer. Um right. that's, that's one, of, what that's I one am. of
0: my that's one of my shut down the conversation things.
1: Yep. Yeah. It's like um, for a long time I would introduce myself I worked for a library so I introduced myself as a library programmer and then I had somebody introduce me as a librarian at, at a a writers conference and I was like, "Oh, oh, oh, wait, What's that's the difference? my well, I, uh, I'm, I'm a writer. I'm not a librarian. I'm a person who writes, who happens to work in a library for money. <laughs> you know? And like so, most Canadian writers, I mean, we, we have day jobs, especially children's writers. So you don't make a sure. lot of money. There is only one JK Rowling. She's the only one that gets all that money. The rest of us just skimp along. You know?
0: <laughs> so, so, so what is a library programmer?
1: Uh, when I did that job, now that was a few years ago. But basically, what I did was I I got to read books to mm-hmm. all kinds of groups of people: children, very small children, baby. You yeah. know, we did we did finger plays with babies. We did oh, wow. um, children's you know picture books with the younger mm-hmm. crowd. We did the um, slightly more ambitious picture books, and so on with the older ones. We did uh, young adult novels with the young adult group, um, and we did an adult book club, and all kinds of programming in between for all ages. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it was a great job. And I love libraries and I highly recommend, I mean, if anybody's out there listening, please recommend my books to your local library because Mm -hmm. uh, that's what I keep doing. I keep telling people because that's how um, I became a writer. You know, I mean, basically if there weren't libraries, I wouldn't be here talking to you today, right? So I really do believe in them and the work that they do for people because everything at our library anyway, in our library system is free pretty much unless there's some kind of materials cost involved, you know. Um sure. And all the work that gets done is uh, done in schools, out of schools, in the library, and you name it. And so, um, yeah, so I really believed in that work. But at the same time, what was happening was I was publishing these children's books, right, and getting invited to writers' conferences and so on to talk to people. And uh, and it, I'm not a librarian. I'm a writer in that case, <laughs> right? You know what I'm <laughs> yeah, saying? Yeah, it's, yeah, like, sure. it's like... So, and I have a, I had a young friend at the time who had nothing published and, you know, was, uh, was basically a journalist like me and she would introduce herself as a writer and lo and behold, a year later, she had a book published, you know what I mean? So I mm. learned, right? I have to introduce myself as a writer in order to be taken seriously in that field.
0: Wow. And, well, fair enough. Uh,
1: you know, so, yeah. So I introduced myself now as a writer and pretty deliberately, you know. Um, mm. I have been like a professional writer. I've written ad copy. <laughs> I've, <laughs> I've pretty much done, I've been a journalist, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and a freelance journalist. I've got like thousands of magazine articles out there somewhere in the world. And, uh, I have more than 40 children's books published. Wow. And that's a lot. these two young adult novels. Yeah, it's a lot. Like, and I, so I write a lot and that is the biggest part of my life, right? So if I introduce myself by the job that makes me the most money,
0: (laughs) you know, then then I'm
1: kind of doing disservice to what I spend most of my life doing, right? So, yeah. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. The part of my job that makes the most money is either the writing or the online courses, right? But what I really am is I'm a historical martial arts instructor. But me actually showing up and teaching classes in person is a, these days, it's a small fraction of my actual income. Because I mean, particularly with COVID, how often do you get to show up and teach in person?
1: That's right. right you know. but, but
0: what I actually am really is a historical martial arts instructor. That's that's the important bit. The writing and the online courses and all that sort of stuff is just sort of other ways of doing the same thing. Um cool. So yeah, but if, if, if I don't want the conversation, I say, I'm a writer. And then the next question is, oh, so what do you write? And then I say, oh, it's kind of specialist nonfiction stuff. It's not really interesting. <laughs> um and that kind of kills the conversation it's like fine i don't have to go there because so yeah, sometimes sometimes you just don't want a long conversation about what you do for a living
1: yeah
0: yeah um, um so now your latest book last of the gifted mm-hmm. it's set in um not not the actual wales but wales perhaps as it should have been <laughs> Right. I,
1: I think of it as the actual whales we'll never yeah, know but it's got magic, I mean, but it's got, it's got that, magic in it it's and, got magic and
0: sorcery it, yes. and, and stuff so, so it's it, yes. it, it's sort mm-hmm. of the magical whales rather than the historical whales yeah um, i mean so
1: yeah it's a fantasy set in a historical setting yeah so it's yeah i'm playing with the how things happen because you know what there is so much that's not known in that particular time period like for those mm-hmm. few years when this invasion was going on, all of the records were destroyed after, right? So, so I can say anything happened. I mean, I know certain things happened at certain points in time, but how they happened isn't really very clear, shall we say. So
0: just for just the listener who probably hasn't read the book yet, what time were we talking about?
1: We're talking about 1282 to 1283. In, That's uh, really specific. In Wales. Yeah, it is really specific. And it's okay. during the invasion of Edward the First. right? So I mm-hmm. have... Two magical characters, um, two siblings who basically pledge their magic to protect their people from the invasion of this very ruthless army, English army, with the little help from the last true Prince of Wales after his murder. So. Uh, Okay. Yeah. We know the Prince of Wales was killed and his head was sent to Edward. But we don't quite know who killed him or how that happened. Nobody really owned up to it. So there's like five different stories of how the prince actually died and what he was doing at that time and so on. Mm-hmm. So, um, that, you know, I mean, as a writer, that's, a, that's a gap, right? And any kind right. of, anytime you have a gap, you can kind of fill it with whatever you want to fill it with. And so yeah. for me, I fill it with magic because that's what I write. I write speculative fiction, you know, so.
0: That's um, funny because in historical martial arts, we hate the gaps. We want our sources to be as absolutely <laughs> comprehensive as possible so we don't have to make anything up to make the martial art work. Right? right. But for a fiction writer, it's all about the gaps. If if all the facts are known and all the motivations are known and everything is known perfectly, then there's nothing to write. Yeah. Yeah. So what what led you pick that specific time?
1: Well, what happened was like I my background is Welsh, right? My my grandfather okay. was a a Welsh person, born in Wales, who was also a Welsh speaker. Um, I know this because he put it on the census in 1916. But um, he was dead long before I was born, and nobody quite knew where he was from. There was another gap there, right? Um, anyway, <laughs> uh, when I was growing up, both him and my grandmother were both dead, right? And I kept yep. trying to ferret out information about them. I got a little obsessed with them. So when I was, and my, my dad also died young, so there was a lack of uh, sources.
0: <laughs> right.
1: And so when I was in my 40s, I decided I would go to Wales. And like my father had always said, his father told him, don't go to Wales to visit because it's all slag heaps and it's you know awful and it's the Industrial Revolution ruined the country and blah, blah, blah. And,
0: <laughs> right. and, as, and can I kind of say, the English screwed it over. As an English yeah, person, I can, I can hold my hands up and say the English <laughs> fucked Wales every which way and sideways.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I'm Sorry sure. My, I'm pretty sure my grandfather thought that. That was the impression yeah. I definitely got growing up. Yeah, he but were um, sort of Welsh nationalist, I guess you could say. Yeah. But uh, anyway, so I just, but I just decided that I I wanted to know more about my heritage, and I wanted to walk the walk. You know, if I couldn't find yeah, out sure. the information, maybe I could walk around in the area. Um, mm-hmm. my, one of my uncles had apparently gone to Wales during the Second World War when he was stationed over there and couldn't find any relatives, like that he could confirm were really our relatives. So I had this sense that, you know, I was going to be wandering around on my own with my kids. And, uh, so I had sort of, but I, I had a sense of where they might have come from. So I, and I chose certain places. And we ended up staying, uh, I rented a, a sheep farm, a working, a, a mm-hmm. cottage on a working sheep farm, which was, the coolest thing ever, and it happened to be near the castle of Dolwyddelan, uh, the the town of Ellen, which still has a kind of a ruin behind it. And we, you know, we had planned to go to all these castles because you hear about them and like you know Conwy and and Bomaris and and Carnarvon and all these places. Yeah. So we we went to all of them, and you have to buy. It's pretty expensive for a Canadian. Like you guys, your money is way more than ours. But uh, I bought tickets and we went to these big, you know, huge, imposing castles. And then we discovered that those were not Welsh castles. Those were English castles, English castles. created to subjugate the Welsh, right? That's right. Yeah. So, <laughs> but Dull with Ellen was the castle of the original Welsh princess, I had heard. So we wandered over there one day and it was like completely different. For one thing, we drove up and there was like nobody around, Right. Um, like there was no ticket takers, there were no guides waiting to you know give give us ten bob and we'll take you for a, a tour. Or there was nothing. There was just nobody. There was us and a completely empty parking lot. So we parked the car and um, we walked up and it was oh my god! It was gorgeous. It's like there's a little waterfall and you know lovely countryside and you walk up and there's this huge gray thing at the top of the hill, and um, we we looked at it and we went oh my gosh because the door that you would go in is way up on like what would be to me the first floor not at yeah. the ground floor where one would enter right and there no, were these kind of rickety the yeah there were yeah. these rickety stone steps up to it and like all these signs you know around with people falling off of steps so it's kind of people yes. falling off of stone it was kind of like you know enter at your own risk right <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and hope someone finds you if you get hurt up there yeah, whatever anyway so we we went up there with that kind of attitude and um you know, like heart thumping, kind of like, what's going on here, right? And we get in, and there's these placards all around in the, on the main floor where you could read the history of Wales, and it was like, there was this invasion in 1282, and, and they lost everything, and they lost their way of life, and they lost their prince, the last true prince of Wales, you know, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. So all of this story was around on the placards, and it was kind of, it's not that I didn't know it, but it was kind of like I didn't know it, because yeah. I was standing in the midst of where they lived you know and where he might have where at least one of the princes of wales might have been born and uh so on and looking around and we um we walked up the stairs to the uh walkway you know the area up in the top where you could still walk around and see out it was a little rickety it was a little scary but it was kind of cool at the same time And looking out over the countryside and suddenly, and just having just read it, just thinking, okay, so this field was full of three to 10,000 soldiers wearing white camouflaged uniforms for the first time ever, and you're Mm -hmm. standing up there facing them, right? And it was like, oh, what would that have been like? And so I, I don't know, I just started to think about it and read about it and, um, in the end, I couldn't not write about it. It was, it just, it caught my um, imagination, I guess you would say, at that mm. moment, you know, just, and, and being, kind of exploring my Welsh heritage at the same mm-hmm. time, you know, and like putting myself in that position and kind of trying to think, you know, what would that have been like, really, to, to the moment when you didn't know what was going to happen like you didn't know you were going to lose everything
0: <laughs> in yeah, fact they yeah, yeah.
1: they were they were kind of winning at one point there you know it looked, <laughs> looked like it looked pretty good for them before the death the, of the home prince, team right? often
0: has an advantage yeah shorter supply and, lines the start
1: there were some you know there were some pretty, there was like the Manai strait thing happened just before um that and there was a sense that maybe he was meeting with one of the um you know, marcher lords who was actually going to be an ally. There was, you know, possibility that they sucked him in a little bit there. And he wandered off with only 18 of his 160 guys, like he had 160 fighting men and families with him, right? Because they lived in family units, they didn't really live in castles. So he was actually living in Achlis at that time, um, at Garth Kellen, apparently. That's what the... The so the research that you can kind of piece together <laughs> yeah. suggests that he was and which is more like a village than a you know, with a village with a good tower kind of thing. Um is kind of where they were all living. And he took only eighteen of his guys and wandered off into Bealth, which is like, you know, way far away from home kind of thing. Like it's still in Wales, but it was uh kind of in the it's kind of in the uh it's like from here to Saskatoon. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, <laughs> anyways. A long so, way, a long way. You know, you know, it's a fair, it's a fair distance. Like, you know, it's not, it's like a day trip maybe, but nevertheless. Um, anyways, uh, with the idea, like he, he was not in armor, I don't think. At least there's no indication that he was actually in armor ready to fight. He was, um, killed by, in, in, in one of the, one of the five stories. <laughs> He Mm -hmm. was killed by, uh, um, an English soldier who threw a spear at a guy didn't, without realizing it was the Prince of Wales. So obviously he wasn't in regalia, you know, he wasn't in identifiable outfits or whatever, um, and possibly not even in armor really at that point, um, because, um, and then they cut his head off and sent it to Edward, you know. So, <laughs> that's um, what you do. Yeah. I mean, you, you, yeah. you chuck
0: a spear at somebody, they die. You chop the head off and send it to the king. And
1: yeah, why not, right? That's, but they yeah. really, like nobody claimed it. You know, nobody said for sure that they did that's it. that's really so, weird. Well, it's not because he was a prince. Like you, you don't kill a prince or a lord. You, you put them up for ransom. It's a total waste of death to kill a guy like that, you know, because he's point. rich, right? <laughs> so, so maybe it was a
0: soldier who just didn't want to get into trouble for, for basically costing his, his unit. That well, kind of that
1: was the most reasonable explanation to me, but also okay. because there was the treachery involved. And, you know, Edward, Edward is this kind of a spin doctor, right? Edward I. Like, yeah. he very carefully controlled all of the information that got out about him. And he very carefully controlled Wales at the, when he, when he took it, like at the point in 1283, 1284 when he had control of it. He was very careful about what he let out and what he didn't let out. At that point in time, in, in, um, after the invasion when he was in wales and he made his little procession in 1284 through wales like his son died and he didn't even go back for the funeral wow you know, because he was very carefully controlling the narrative right i mean mm-hmm. like i to me that's that's what was going on maybe that's not true but that's for how it feels reading it now and kind of reading between the lines looking for these gaps as you do as a novelist right so um the thing the thing about the death of the Prince of Wales not being claimed, there's a lot of ways that, that, met, that does make sense. If you don't want to be the aggressor, even though yeah. you are, you know? Yeah. And, and like the amount, like he took a, he destroyed a lot of records. Edward destroyed a lot of records related to the Prince and, and the entire House of Ebifra. Um, very deliberately, I think, picking mm-hmm. and choosing what he was allowing to remain and what he wasn't. Cause, the only thing that remains of the Welsh at that time period was how fierce they were. Um, but right. for twelve, for for like about ten to twelve years, the uh, pulled together the entire country; never had been done before. So obviously, he had something going for him um, to pull all these warring guys together and make them play nice for ten to twelve years before. Um, and and Edward deliberately stepped in and stopped that because at the point where. Thelan was going to marry um Eleanor de Montfort the younger the the youngest uh, the de Montfort daughter right of mm-hmm. Simon de Montfort who was kind of like Edward's arch enemy you could say <laughs> mm-hmm. uh having been a former um godfather of his i guess and you know Edward was responsible for Simon's death and for that the banishment of the entire family so um, Edward's anyway. He kind of why why Llewellyn would decide at fifty six years old to marry um, an exiled girl from a family that the the king that was his arch enemy hated is beyond me. You know what I mean? There's no explanation for why he decided to do this, but he decided to marry her, brings her over, and Edward captures her, deli- like possibly deliberately sets pirates after her, captures her, and holds her in house arrest for three years. To take down Llewellyn's entire kingdom, right?
0: Wow! That's to desiccate
1: far. Wales, like that was the the only purpose. And they they got them like they finally Edward finally said, okay, I'll let you marry her. Come to England, you know. Come come on, <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll throw you a wedding, right? Gets him in a room, <laughs> gets him in a room, and makes him sign away even more territory. Uh, to the point where Edward wrote to the Pope saying that you know I felt my life was in danger, and I had to sign that paper, you know. Yeah, It's like, anyway, so years go by, everything's fine. They start, they have a, you know, uh, finally uh, have their first child. Eleanor dies in childbirth and suddenly they're at war again. The war was actually um, probably caused by reaction of the Welsh to really bad treatment by the marcher lords Mm -hmm. that were told, there's some good indication that Edward was kind of egging them on to... To you know, do what they could to do whatever they wanted, essentially, to the Welsh. Mm-hmm. And uh, when uh, David, Llewellyn's brother, finally reacted and tried to take back some of what he should have had—that they were trying to take away from him—they declare war on the entire country and take them down. And like the proclamation that comes out after Edward wins says, "We have exterminated the Welsh." Wow! You know, like pretty, pretty heavy thinking like he, he, went into, thinking. Yeah, he went into that war to end it and he literally decided like he literally devastated the house of Aberfram. Um he made sure that there was nothing left in it that no one could have children you know like the he didn't kill the children of of Llewellyn or, or Davith but he did put them in abbeys and forced them to become nuns and forced them like and, and had paid mm. for uh, them to be watched for the rest of their right. lives, so that they literally wouldn't ever dally okay, <laughs> or so anything. Why, so right?
0: why, why didn't he kill them? It's a well, lot cheaper.
1: Because he was rela- related to them, for one thing. And again, you think about it from a spin doctor's point of view, right? Edward yeah, wants yeah. to be the good guy. He doesn't want right. to be, like he's not the hammer of the Scots yet, right? This <laughs> is still 1282, we're 30 years from that. Yeah. And he's got this lovely wife, Eleanor de Castile, whom apparently he truly loved. I mean, they were together as kids; they had sex when she was only thirteen. <laughs> you okay. know what I mean? And like he was—he was very devoted, apparently, to her. Uh, kind of a one-man guy at that point, point. and so was Llewellyn. You know, there was a lot of—I um, don't know. It was.
0: Well, there's, people fell in love of, back then the way they do now.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so so less, less no, honestly, to honestly like, but David, I mean, the brother of Llewellyn, and and most of the people at that time had uh, illegitimate kids, had mistresses, sure. had what, you know, like, there was a rate, it was still arranged marriages, we're still in the time of arranged marriages for um, reasons of state. And there's no question that that Eleanor de Castile and Edward I were arranged mar- was an arranged marriage. They're, they didn't know each other. Mm-hmm. Until the night they met on their, like the week that they got married, basically. And yet, wow. you know, yet a year later, they had their first kid, right? So obviously, sure. you know, I mean, I, I just think that Edward was, um, again, trying to control the narrative, you know, and being, being very careful not to, um, appear to be too much of an aggressor. Cause at the same time, he's taking the persona of um, King Arthur, you know, yeah. he's, he's doing this whole thing during that time period. The reason he stays in Wales and does the whole procession through Wales is he's trying to find Excalibur. He's on a hunt for, according to the research. Anyway, he's he was hunting for Excalibur. He was they didn't find it. well, because he was they, for they the real just,
0: Excalibur. well okay. because
1: they just found the bodies of what they thought were uh, King Arthur and Guinevere, and Edward right. and Eleanor went and agreed that yes, these are the bodies, and they took them and they buried them elsewhere, and they did all kinds of things, and then they did this procession through to where to the legendary place where that um, sword was supposed to possibly have been. And they stayed there for a fair bit of time, you know. During that period of time, that's when his uh, his son died, and he doesn't go back to England for the funeral or anything, right? Wow. So and he's on a hunt for something, and and it, there's a good there's a good possibility that Eleanor was maybe pushing him along there, like that maybe she was quite thrilled with the whole legend of King Arthur thing, and that maybe yeah. Edward would be the return of the king, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like like yeah. you know, like so it's like a little bit I don't know, it's it's. Lends itself to speculative fiction. It lends itself to <laughs> it really a fantasy. There doesn't it? I mean, yeah, it really yeah. does. Yeah, now, so, you, say, you
0: mentioned earlier that um, that this army was in white camouflage.
1: Mm, first, first time. First apparently first time ah. ever used. Yeah.
0: Right. The first time the camouflage at was Ellen. used.
1: At Dole with Ellen. Yeah.
0: Okay, that's the first time in military history that we have camouflage being used by an army.
1: So I've read. Yeah.
0: Okay. Why would it be white?
1: Because it's snowy. <laughs> disappear a guy, a guy in white, a guy in armor probably glints in the snow, but a guy in, in sure. white would disappear. And apparently, um, I don't know if it's true or not, but it's possible that Eleanor de Castile and her ladies created these white cloaks for them to, uh, to hide their armor so that they could disappear huh. against the snow. It's quite a, quite a cool, quite a cool little, anyway. Yeah. yeah I, I,
0: <laughs> I, I wonder how well it would have actually worked.
1: I think pretty well. We we got a lot of snow here, that's I guess what I was thinking too, as I was standing on this uh, walkway looking out thinking, so this valley filled with snow, and like this army in a white cloak, honestly, it, you know, like snow can be pretty pristine, I'm looking at my backyard right now and it's like a mountain of yeah, snow as soon, as soon there, as somebody walks know?
0: through it, Yeah, as soon as somebody walks through it, you, you see the tracks and it's
1: yeah, like but, for a um, whole army
0: to be camouflaged. I don't know. I mean, camouflage makes sense when you've got like an individual or a small unit moving through uh, an area. But for half, to so expect a whole army to disappear just because they're the wrong color or the right color to blend into their background.
1: But if they turn Thricy. around, you know, it's like, like with the clothes, uh, I, I I think it's, okay. I, I could see it. I could see it at okay. least for a little while. Like you could definitely sneak up on a guy, you know?
0: Oh, oh, sure. One on yeah. one, you, you could, I
1: Hmm. Yeah, could you could you control an army? I don't know. I don't know. It's an interesting yeah, story think. though, hey? like It just, is. It's a
0: very interesting story. Wow,
1: well, yeah.
0: And knowing the listenership to this podcast, I'll be very surprised if I don't get an email from at least a couple of people who already know all sorts of things about this and have done a billion tons of research on it. Oh, that like, would be super. Well, actually, I would love I, to know. Yeah, yeah. I would...
1: So could we recreate it? You know what I mean. Well, <laughs> see if it would work. Like I'd like to. I just. I'd yeah. love to.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, uh, yeah. So if anybody does know about this stuff, feel free to get in touch, and I will definitely pass it on to Marie. Please do. Um, yeah. So you know, this show is called The Sword Guy, and as you can see from the wall behind me, we're really all about the swords, and there are yeah. swords in your book. Yeah. So a few, tell us, yeah. tell us something about the swords in your book.
1: Um. Well we don't really know um with with and the lack of information we don't really know what his weapon of choice was but we do right. know or there's a pretty good indication that he was a crusader when he was about 14 right so right. that would have been early in the twelfth 1200s early in the 13th century in the mid-13th century we know there was a change in the armor and there was a change in the type of sword um, and they are kind of moving towards the I, what I've. Heard, and I, you'll as the sword expert, I, I I'm intrigued by the idea of a one and a half hand sword or a two handed sword, which is how I've read it. And I'm kind of like one and a half handed sword. I wonder
0: what that was. Uh, uh, <laughs> but anyways, I, I can explain it if you want.
1: Yeah, yeah. Could you? Because that um, okay. I mean that is
0: like uh, swords made to be held in one hand only. Mm-hmm. I usually. Um, intended, you're intended to have something else in your other hand, usually, until quite late in in history. You have like a shield or something in the other hand, or a dagger or something like that, right? Um, But the sword is only intended to be handled with one hand, and they're often relatively light, and they're relatively short, okay? Okay. When plate armour developed, it became um, advantageous to not have anything in your other hand, because you had the armour and you said you didn't need a shield. And so you could put the other hand on your sword if you wanted to, but you were also riding a lot. So you have the left hand would be on the reins and the right hand would be on the sword. But if you dismounted, you could use the same sword with two hands. So it's a kind of... Okay. Uh, it has a... It's, it's easy to... I'm just going to get a couple of swords off. <laughs> um, Okay. So... A Single handed sword of about the period we're talking about. Um, this is, a, this is a bit later, but but the the grip is only you can only reasonably fit one hand on this sword, okay? Okay, Whereas with what we call in historical martial arts centers a long sword, yeah, um, the grip it the sword is, is light enough that you can easily use it with one hand, it's it's, it's wieldy, and you can draw it from the hip with. One hand, no problem. So you can carry it like a sidearm, right? Um, but you can comfortably put a second hand on the handle. And there's there's all sorts of variations on this. Some had a slightly longer handle and a somewhat elongated pommel, so you could just squeeze a second hand on if you wanted to. Others, like the longswords we tend to use most, have enough space on the handle that you could actually put a third hand on there.
1: Yeah. That's um, that's what you've got there is similar to the sword that's shown in the statues of Llewellyn at Griffith, so right. and that's like but there, I mean the ones that if I've this, seen this the, is thirteen hundreds,
0: late thirteen hundreds yeah. So so um, how like but how, but true, how? No, no, let, let, me, let me just finish okay, the, the thing a true two handed sword is too big to be reasonably used with one hand, uh. and the handle is often about what. Well, I'm holding my hands up in front of my face, about forty okay. centimeters long. And the blade, the whole thing might be five feet long, even longer. And it's not a sidearm. You can't just you can't just have it in a scabbard at your hip. It has to be carried. Right. And it has to be used with two hands. There's no reasonable prospect of using it as a single-handed sword. So that's how we define them these days. In the 14th sorry, in the late 13th late century sorry, late thirteenth century. Late thirteenth,
1: yeah.
0: Yeah. You're going to get mostly single-handed swords and some of them would have a slightly longer grip and so the, the hand and a half sword is often also called a bastard sword because it's neither a single-handed sword nor is it a true two-handed sword cool um but so that's that's what. the sort of- that's Does probably
1: that like, according, like, I don't know, the statues, you know, were it would be all mm. after him, long after him, right? Long after People him. imagining what he might have looked like. And they have yeah. him with the big sword, with the, you know, very, very tall sword, like it comes up to mm-hmm. his waist and he's got his hands on it and it's not in a, it's kind of facing down from him. You know what I mean? But, yeah. but it's a good bet that he would have had, I think, what you're calling the bastard sword.
0: Quite You know,
1: because, I mean, like, A, he was a crusader. B, he was the kind of guy who pulled the country together first by war and second mm-hmm. by diplomacy. So he was, you can imagine he was a good fighter. He also had 160 really good fighters with him, right? Like he had chosen um, the guys that he called his family were these guys, right? Taly in, in Welsh means my family. And this was the group of people that he had around him. The lo- the The largest amount of people... In a Tailey, of, of any Welsh leader, um, through any amount of history. So he was, um, obviously well versed in the arts of war is what I'm thinking. Sure. You know, no, no way to know for sure what it was he liked to use. But, but sure. in Wales at that time, they were using the lance, like the javelin, the lance, sure. right? Um, and they were using it slightly differently than, um, you know, the English would sort of Stick it up against the ground, I guess, and and hold it out to the horse, hoping to, I guess, spear somebody. But the the Welsh actually threw them. And also, oh, well, there
0: are diff- different kinds of lances. Yeah, there are so, the, the throwing javelins and the sort of the, the long lance or the fixed lance. Yeah, mm.
1: these would be the I would assume for what I can tell, at least would be the throwing kind because that's what they right. did, right? They were also incredibly physically fit because the Flemish oh, yeah. were the Flemish were actually afraid of the Welsh because they would. If they once they you I mean once you throw the javelin, you got no weapon, right? <laughs> but well, but no, they, they have, would either they have turn and run.
0: They'd have a sword as on the yeah. hip as a backup for sure.
1: Assuming, assuming that,
0: or an axe. At least
1: most of them would have. Yeah, not yeah. maybe the farmers, but but the the guys who the hundred and sixty would for sure. But um, anyway, the 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 idea would be that. The Flemish were afraid of them apparently because a Welsh warrior would try and pull you off your horse and kill you barehandedly, you know. So they were <laughs> like, and they they did okay. a lot of training. Like Edward apparently, um, Edward was known for having his army train every day, right? Like and making them train. He got that from watching the Welsh because really? that's what the Welsh did, you know. Like that was just their way of life. Right? It was all about training and all about physical fitness and all that kind of stuff. They do you have they, any
0: sources for that?
1: Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, a few. Because I'd love but, to know how they trained. Yeah, that's what I couldn't figure out. So I spent a lot okay. of time trying because that's kind of what we don't have, right? But we do know that, um, that we do know a certain amount. We know that that was their way of life and that that was apparently where Edward got the idea from that he would make his army train. Um, so I don't know. I just bas- basically pieced a lot of things together and, um, of course, the sword, you, you won't like this, but the sword the sword that appears in in Sight in, um, in the chapter there that I was referring to um, is actually created from the feather of a raven. So. Um, well, it's a magic sword, <laughs> It's a sword, magical right?
0: sword, yeah. It's a ma- but, magic but swords was, are I'm, fine. In... We are friends of magic swords on this okay, show. Okay, that's and good. We have, we have, we've had um, Jason Kingsley <laughs> on the show. Um, in like November last year, I think it was. And he's actually handled the, um, ah, I'm blanking on the name of it, but the the sword from the movie Hawk the Slayer. He actually got to play with that and put a video out on it. And, and everyone, all oh, the listeners were all super excited about the Hawk the Slayer sword. So don't worry, you are allowed magic For sure, on okay, show. so,
1: well, <laughs> Absolutely. And, and I'm thinking, like he's he's fighting a griffin at that point. So, uh, you know, um, Hugh, well, I, I don't want to get no spoiler alerts or whatever here, but uh, anyway, he's Llewellyn the ghost is fighting <laughs> a griffin with a magic sword. So in my head, it's a two-handed. I don't know. It's probably a little bit out of time, but, um, since we're but moving in that any, direction, okay. you if know? he's a
0: ghost if he's a ghost yes. fighting with a magic sword against a <laughs> mythical beast, the normal rules of what you're allowed to do in like a strictly historical fiction don't apply.
1: Maybe suspended, right?
0: <laughs> right, but, but they, just, they just don't apply because, you know, it's like, I, I know of these um, writers, I'm blanking on the name, who, they write westerns and they oh, decided, yeah. they, they, they write, you know, they're one of these sort of serial producers that they write loads and loads of books every year in this sort of western series. And, um, they, they when they started doing this, they didn't want historical buffs to complain about, oh, well, but you've got this kind of revolver, which wasn't invented until three years later. And, you know, and you've got that, this, all that kind of historical pedantry that actually I really like, but it's yes. annoying for writers. And so they put unicorns in their Western, <laughs> right? And the only function that those unicorns serve So the writers can write whatever the hell they want, and if anybody says, "Oh, but that kind of revolver doesn't exist yet in this period," they can just say, "Dude, there's a unicorn."
1: (laughs) That's right. There's a griffin.
0: Right. There's a griffin. Like, come on. I can have a two-handed sword, and I can have it made out of a Raven's feather if I like. It's a griffin. Yeah. So you have you have should we say the unicorn exception?
1: Super. All right, thinking. I'm I'm using the unicorn exception. I'm gonna re- I'm gonna write that down somewhere and remember that <laughs> next time somebody but, but, okay, calls so me. Speak,
0: on it. <laughs> speaking speaking of animals, okay. Uh-huh. You have presented a workshop on living history, which had this kind of um, tagline or description. Castle hopping across northern Wales, being exc- escorted by armed guards through the Che Guevara Memorial, or finding yourself trapped by an elephant at Buckingham Palace. I have the photos, it's all research. So, elephant at Buckingham Palace.
1: All right. Well, okay. So, um, I should probably And that's not just what a what way say. of
0: referring to the Queen, I hope. No,
1: it isn't. No, she's not an elephant. No, there really no, was not. an elephant. Uh, we went. Well, during the first trip that we took overseas, we stayed for, um, I think it was three or four days in London. I got to tell you, I'm sorry, but London is not my town. It's like, Okay. I really had a lot of trouble with London, mostly because it's not laid out the way that I'm used to, right? Yeah, sure. In North America, we're kind of grid people, you know? <laughs> like yes. there's, there's a logic. I can go from one side of town to the other if I know the right road, right? And it's good. And the roads are kind of when I say straight ahead, they're kind of straight ahead, right? Yeah. So, anyway, we were at this lovely place uh, in on Oxford Street in England, and um, the concierge convinced me to try a guided tour with my two kids, right? And I thought, okay, well, we weren't going to do that. We were going to do the hop-on, hop-off bus thing, yeah. you know, and I think I probably should have done that because then if I got lost, it wouldn't have mattered. But, um Anyway, we decided we'd do this guided tour. So I forked over a lot of money for this yeah, guided so. tour for us. And we uh, we're supposed to catch a bus at such and such a place in the morning. He said, so he said, you just go straight down here, you turn left and go straight. You you can't miss it, right? So we right. start out, we go the first way, we turn, we go to the next part, and then the road forks out in five different directions. I'm like not used to five. I'm used to four, right? You know, so so I'm looking. I'm going like, where is straight ahead when you're faced with five different roads? Which bump. one is the straight ahead one? Right? Anyway, yeah. we spent the morning for about half an hour running around trying to figure out where this stupid hotel was, where this bus was, where we were supposed to catch yeah. this very expensive bus tour. We finally get on the bus and we're on. And we're going around the first stop was, you know, I think it was Westminster. It was lovely. It was great. I was okay. I could follow the guide. He had a little hat and what and an umbrella right. and you know, like I could kind of figure out what we were doing. And then um and then we were supposed to go to Buckingham Palace. Okay. So we're driving along and like the traffic is like murder. Like, you know, yeah. I'm thinking, wow, England, oh, holy doodle. But really, it was way more than it should have been because there was going to be a parade. Nobody knew there was apparently um. going to be a parade, right? And so, but our guide decides, well, we're going to go anyway, and we're going to see it. There's a lot of people here. Try and stay with me. You know, you know I've got the hat. You know, I've got the umbrella, yeah. right? Watch for me. And, and so we're going along. And what comes t- towards us, what is the parade, is a huge elephant, This huge, amazing wooden elephant from somewhere in India that the Prince of Wales decided to purchase. And since they were bringing it in, I guess, from the airport, they decided to do it in this kind of like parade thing, right? (laughs) So so that was what was happening. And of course, my son and I stopped to take pictures of said elephant. It was the coolest thing. It was like really two or three stories high. Um, And there were people inside the top part of it dancing around like... Huge, like ordinary-sized people, <laughs>
0: yeah,
1: way up in the top part of this elephant, there was like a, a an interior room? A gallery, at room, something yeah. in which they were and, they, and like they would come out onto the sort of balcony thingy and dance around. And there was a lot of music. It was kind of like you know East Indian or something. Yeah. It was like from East India, from India, or, you know, like because that was where the elephant was from, I guess. Anyway, it was the coolest thing. It was like this. Pageant, right, going on in front of us, and then we turned around, and there, like when it was finished, there was all these people, and no guide, no umbrella, <laughs> no little boulder hat, nothing. Me and my son standing in the middle of all these people, right, totally, totally trapped for about yeah. an hour. Um, I, I found a phone, a payphone at a restaurant across the street from in this area of the Buckingham Palace. And phoned the guide company and said, "We've lost our guide. My my <laughs> daughter is with the guide. My son is with me. Right? I oh my god! What the hell? What? Pardon me. What? What you am I going to do next?
0: So you are separated from your child
1: from that? my daughter. That, yeah, that, who was sixteen? Means, I mean, she was. I, still level was headed, crap, and you know, me. I I knew she yeah. would be okay, but at the same time, not really.
0: That's scary, um, yeah.
1: Anyway, it was it was horrifying for about an hour, and we finally found that We completely missed the incredibly expensive lunch we had paid for, um, nice. but eventually did get back on the tour and went to visit the Tower of London, which was a, you know, another okay. story, but also great. So,
0: but yeah, so that's actually, my
1: story about the elephant at Buckingham Palace.
0: So, where you that wasn't actually at Buckingham Palace? So surely, yeah, it was well in front of it. Oh, right, on the
1: grounds okay. of Buckingham Palace. We were looking around at all these, you know, waterfowl things in the, in the, um, I guess there's oh, a in the, lake in, the in the front park. of Buckingham Palace. Yeah, in the park. Oh,
0: yeah. right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: Came right through into, I don't know where they parked it in the end, because it was a huge, you know, wooden
0: I elephant. I guess Regent's but Park.
1: Huh. Okay. It must be there somewhere, because we saw it. I have pictures.
0: <laughs> <laughs> all right. <laughs> okay. So, so... And, and all of this counts as research, of course. Of um, course. And yes. historical martial arts are based entirely on research, um, which you describe as the art of mining for details, which is yes. a very good way to put it. Um, so research is a fundamental part of what we do, and obviously you have some experience at it. So I am curious, how do you go about your research? What is the process?
1: Well, you know, um, I consider almost anything to be a good... Uh, source of research. So, I mean, obviously, you're starting with books, right? And what I was what I was looking for were the recommended books. You know, something that would be. I I wanted it to be as realistic as I could make it, even though I was mm-hmm. using the fantasy. Like I I didn't want to go too far with the uh, unicorn principle. You know. Yeah, sure. So I I wanted to uh, really get as much fact as I could, and that's when I began to discover all these gaps in in the information. But um, using books, using websites using um pictures you know illustrations different mm-hmm. things that that were from that time period there's actually quite a few illustrations available and you can kind of get a sense of what the life was like um and videos like to do the martial arts stuff actually i watched a lot of videos because <laughs> okay. um, i i don't do it myself and i'm not so. a very athletic sort of person you know what i mean so um but i had covered a lot of horse shows i used to do horse shows here um you know, both the Class A and the Western, um, so horses were kind of familiar, and so, I, you know, looking at people using, fighting from horses, not fighting, fighting from not horses, fighting, yeah. fighting on foot, what am I saying, <laughs> um, you know, and, and just like how you use the sword, how the sword works, what you what you do when you actually draw a bow like what the muscles are you know all of that stuff like it's all available right it takes years to kind of ferret it all out but i also had access to um a couple of well i'm i'm a journalist right so what i what i did was i basically got on the phone um i'd look on the internet and find somebody who was an expert at something or other and i'd either email them or i'd actually find the phone number and pick up the phone and phone them and say so how do you you know what did they do you know basically yeah yeah, yeah, i mean and it's interesting but scholars and experts are often quite um happy to talk about their area of expertise because almost nobody asks i guess right Um, and and almost
0: nobody nobody knows nobody cares when somebody actually wants to get it right it's like oh my god i've not been wasting my time all these years
1: Exactly. So, I mean, I had lots and lots of bibliographies passed along to me mm-hmm. and, um, you know, sources suggested and so on. Like this one, the Medieval Art of Swordsmanship, Royal Armouries, MS-133, which I actually have. Oh, that's a fantastic
0: book. <laughs> yeah, 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 I know.
1: It's like, and the pictures, and then, but you can get a lot of it online. That was one of the things that I didn't realize when I, I went to Wales and I was looking mm. up uh, ancestry history, you know, of my own ancestors. And I got to the, I, I had myself... I had to get photographed and ID'd and almost fingerprinted to get into the uh, the main library of Wales. And I okay. got in there and I was looking for genealogical research and I really wanted to see a couple of the like the books, the red book and all that. Mm-hmm. And I, I I went up to the, you know, uh, reference librarian and I was asking for help and she looked at me and she said, you came all this way. You won't be able to see it. It's under lock and key here. You know, like you can't actually see the actual book, right? She <laughs> said you could have you could have gotten all that online because we put it all online. You know, you need to come That's all this it. way, and you can't see the thing anyway, right? It was like so. A lot of information <laughs> is online that you don't think is there. Um, sure. It might not be in the surface, but if you if you keep going, you, you know, keep keep clicking, yeah. keep keep clicking those links, and and so on. You so how look,
0: how do you get a lot of it how do you kind of collate and organize it
1: um right now i use scrivener back when i started this though in 2006 <laughs> yeah. basically i was you know collecting it either in paper form i have like three bins of paper files that i've you know printed out from different sources and photocopied from books mm-hmm. that came from the library from wherever because um, you can interlibrary loan any- anything pretty much if it exists you can get it right Um, and because I taught at the university, I, I was a sessional at the university too. I had access to the university library, which is, you know, even better for research for real stuff. Um, and a lot of the, uh, a lot of people that I contacted, you know, the experts and the scholars and so on would send me articles like photocopy, them, scan them, whatever, and send them to me. And so I would print them out. And so I have those, but, um, but basically I kept it all in Microsoft Word folders, you know, I mean. Okay. Pulling it out, putting it into different sort of, I have, I don't know, just, <laughs> I probably well, have, I don't know how much because, memory worth, of, you know, stored in this kind of research.
0: I mean, these days with the internet, finding the data points is quite easy, mm. right? If Keeping it even exists, is, you can yeah. probably find it. But, but you know, I, you, know you, you dive into a rabbit hole and you start digging through and, and you find all this stuff. Let's say, I don't know, you're researching, like, how cost how clothes were made in 1450 or whatever it is and how that's going to relate to what you're doing and that takes you off onto a tangent about how leather was tanned and onto another tangent about how tanneries were built and then yeah and then dyeing and and, and all that sort of stuff and you end up you end up with this gigantic mass of information which you then have to sort of sift through and collate and organize and and
1: find later find when and, you actually find you know like when you're checking yeah. it you're revising the the manuscript and you're going why did i put that in there <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> and then finding the the research part well i what i did was um i had because i started this i during the period of time when i was writing this book i went back and got my mfa in creative writing at ubc so my thesis project was the first draft of this book the first book okay. And uh, what I did there was I had the amazing Glenn Huser as my um, my thesis instructor, and he told me to footnote. So I started footnoting everything, right? right. And um, okay. even the speculative stuff, like because I'd be reading something, and i go, so I wonder if, you know, and like then yeah. your mind goes off on this sort of speculative, maybe reading between the lines, this is a gap, how can I fill it kind of thinking. So I had that, and then when I, but I mean... 50 revisions in this was a completely different book right so yeah. i went back and i i decided i that in order to know whether i was right or not because i'm not a historian and honest to god this was not what my life was all about before i started writing this book right right sure. so this is very much as you say i have this massive stuff and i have no idea really um, you know how accurate it is at this point i went to um, I, I was able to get a grant from uh, Creative Saskatchewan here in Saskatchewan and go to a historical reviewer. And she does know her history. It's Danielle Sibolsky, right. who is a Canadian. Oh, I know Danielle. Yeah, she's been yeah. on the
0: show. She's been yeah. on the show.
1: She's a Canadian, right? And she's yeah. got like, – like, I found her because I – I used to, I read the medievalist.net, right? So I'm reading this, all these different articles, and I finally, I emailed the editor of the medievalist.net, and I said, So I'm this Canadian author trying to write this book in Wales in the 13th century, right? I, I need a, I would like to find an expert who can work with authors, you know, who won't kind of cut me off at the knees with the, historical research but who would have have expertise. Up. <laughs> yes exactly you know right. but who would who would have an expertise to be able to check my research for me and he mm-hmm. immediately wrote back oh, you've got to contact Daniel Sobalski, you know and put me right. in touch with her and um, so and I initially I had contacted her and said so how much would you charge me to you know read this book yeah, yeah. and tell me if it was right or not and she gave me a figure and I went okay thanks
0: yeah oh, <laughs> and yeah, then like I say,
1: yeah, and the, but then I found a, a, a right. grant that would actually pay for that and and was able to hire her to do that. So Fantastic. I was really, and like, a, she's great to work with as a novelist because she'll say something like, well, you know, in this section you have this happening, it kind of wouldn't have happened this way, but maybe you could do it this way, you know, and get the same, yeah. get, you'd be a little more accurate, but have the same sort of effect that you're going for here. So it was great working with her, and uh, she provided me with all kinds of uh, sort of, I what what I did was I told her to make it easier for you, you know, so that it won't take you like forever and you won't have to look all this stuff up. I'll give you a footnoted version with all my yeah. resources so you know where I got the, you know, the information yeah. from and you can tell me, can I use it? You know, can I go with this? Is this close enough, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because at at some point we're not going to know unless we get time travel and are able to go back there and actually figure it out, especially in this time period with all these gaps, right?
0: It's but, a very um, good idea to have a footnoted version.
1: Yeah, that's what I did. is I footnoted, I it took me a, a while. It took me a while to go back through the final. What is what was essentially at that point the final version, um, mm. which again was. But I did have my footnotes from my MFA version, and you know, all of this massive, huge amount of research. <laughs> so yeah. So, but in the books, right? I, I actually have um, the best of those collected, and I I've suggested them. I've got nonfiction books, I've got the online resources, I've got maps, you know, some of the maps right. I used because that was a huge part of it, and, and then some of the historical <clears throat> fiction that I read that I thought was, you know, sure. like I, I read the, the recommended stuff, right, uh, from this time period because I wanted to be within the pantheon of possibility, you know, the things that people yeah. that readers would expect kind of thing, um, as well as what what I hoped was historically accurate and uh so i you know so i'd like it's got a it's got a um character list with pronunciation guide and a, in welsh and it's got um the glossary of terms you know mm-hmm. and all of that because it's a young adult novel and i wanted it to be really useful you know yeah um and i i kind of want to open it up too to other people who might be interested in this you know even in the time period maybe not so much in wales you know i realize it's a <laughs> kind of obscure country, but you know, no, no but it's it's, it's, it's but,
0: good it's good to be super specific. If you're really specific in time and place, and what have you. It it well, you know, things. there's
1: there's good resources and then there's sort of you yeah know, fun resources and whatnot. And I just wanted to make sure that there was um, some access to them for if you if anybody read this yeah. and got interested that they would be able to do their own, you know, go on and, and get their own. Yeah, so I made that, sure that that's... I included a further reading list, which is kinda of weird, but you know
0: <laughs> No, it's, it's it's as it should be. Yeah. It's, seriously. So I mean and lots of um, historical novelists do something similar where they say, Okay, and I get this idea about how this was done from this book and I get this idea about how that was done from working with this living history person and so on. So it's yeah it's you're in good company doing that, I think. And it's the right thing to do. Um, okay. Um, as a journalist, you, as you, and you mentioned, you, you pick up the phone and you talk to people and you get them to tell you stuff. So, you know, a thing about, a thing or two about interviewing and I, I am perfectly able to edit out your answer to this question should it go in, in in awkward directions. So don't, you can be completely honest. Okay. I have never interviewed anybody before I started this podcast. Okay, so my sum total of interviewing experience is this show. So I'm always interested in how I can do the things I do better. So how do you think I could be a better interviewer?
1: Do you know? I think you're really on on a, you're you're a pretty good interviewer. Honestly, you're definitely on the right track because um, you actually find something out. <laughs> About people you actually do some research you know before the mm-hmm. person comes on which is uh, you'd be surprised how many interviewers don't do that but that's um when i like i have taught uh, journalistic research and that's mm-hmm. kind of like my my key if you're going to go into an interview you don't need to know everything but you need to know something so that you can ask intelligent questions right and right. Uh, like i i i love i love your question list because nobody has ever asked me about that elephant i honestly really? thought like I put that in one of my bios and I thought, well that's it. I better not. I don't I don't know if I want to say that or not. And then I thought, yeah, I leave it there. Cuz that is what I did and there it is. You know <laughs> yeah. But nobody has ever asked me anything about that. Um so I'm <laughs> okay. and uh, like it's not it's not one of my main um Bios. So yeah. I'm kind of interested in the fact that you actually found it, <laughs> that well, bio, asked, to ask me that question.
0: I, I, so I was digging around looking for because yeah. I wasn't just looking for things that I would be interested in. I was looking for things that the usual listener of this show is likely to find intriguing.
1: And that's the other yeah. point that that interviewers should do that often they don't do is think about who's listening or who is uh, reading. You know, if you're a writer, who is reading the book and what are they going to be interested in? Right. Um, yeah. It's all that, you know, it's not so much about me, it's about you kind of, you know, mm. thing. So that's, uh, so like, I, I really feel like you're on the right track and you're doing everything exactly right,
0: honestly. That's that's disconcerting.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. and re-asking, you know, like asking asking the question and then listening to the answer and asking a question after that that maybe not on your question list which you also do so I, I do think you're you've got three things at least going for
0: you in terms of interviewing. okay okay so nothing yeah. jumps out as I should definitely work on this particular thing.
1: No okay I mean you know
0: yeah all right well I'll, in which case I will I will open that out to the listeners and because actually when I first started the show, the audio quality was appalling <laughs> and my interviewing skills were not as good. And I found out that the audio was appalling because um, some very kind listeners um, didn't just write in to tell me that the audio wasn't that great. They actually included screenshots of what to do to fix it.
1: Oh, nice. that right. was great. <laughs> so I could like, go,
0: okay, I'll do this. I'll do this. I'll do this. Okay. And that will fix the problem. Brilliant. And, and that made me realize how little I know about audio engineering. And so I hired an audio engineer to teach me how to master the audio to get it, you know, to, to the necessary standard. I'm not an audio engineer, but I can yeah. tweak the audio. So at least it sounds okay. Right. Um, and, and then another friend of mine, um, sent me this great long email saying basically, basically telling me what I was doing wrong as an interviewer.
1: Ah,
0: okay, and it was really useful, and it's, it's the sort of thing that it's it's not always the most comfortable thing to read,
1: mm.
0: but it's it made a huge difference to how I actually approached the interviews, um, and I've cut out doing certain things, and I've um, started doing other things, and it actually made the whole interviewing process better. So yeah, you know, so I I I find the feedback really. Really helpful. I mean, it's nice to know if you're doing things right, but it's also yeah. it's especially useful to know when you're not doing things as they as well as they could be done. Well,
1: I okay. think you're doing a pretty good job. You know, for, oh. it's a, one of the better interviews I've had, and i I think I've done sixty-seven of them in the past year.
0: Oh my god, that's a lot of interviews. <laughs> yeah, it is. All right. Well, I'm I'm glad I'm glad that this is this is all right for you. Okay. Now, my last question. Okay. I have these questions I tend to end interviews with. And my absolute last question is usually if you had a million dollars to spend improving historical martial arts worldwide, how would you spend it? And I don't honestly think you're going to have an answer to that, not being a historical martial arts person particularly. So I will confine myself to what's the best idea you've never acted on?
1: The best idea I've never acted on? Yeah. I think I pretty much act on everything I think of. Best idea never acted. You know, I always feel like there's a if if I have an idea and I really want to do it, I'm going to do it, right? So, um, the best course, idea I haven't them, I acted on so. yet is that okay. I'm going. Oh, yeah. I'm coming. I'm. I'm actually. I during the research for this novel, I I mm-hmm. I am such a. And I mean, totally in depth. Researcher, which you don't have to be, but I mean, it's my thing. So what can I say? Um, I I took a medieval cooking class, so I'm taking oh, wow. this this class called Eat Medieval, which I've taken mm-hmm. now four times. Probably will take another one when if the if and when <laughs> they ever show it again, which comes out of the University of Durham and Blackfriars Restaurant, which is a okay. Blackfriars Abbey in Newcastle. Um, wow. It's a brilliant event. It's like it's a five-day cooking class where you get all these incredible medieval. Fusion recipes so they've got they've gone back and, and, to the manuscripts and pulled out what they did and then they've tried to figure out How could you do that in modern times with what we have and so on? And, so you fly to
0: Newcastle for it?
1: I am I'm am, the best idea I've had this year is that I'm go, I'm planning to They're gonna have hopefully an in-person cooking class in September this year uh, 2022 and if COVID allows, you know, Um, I am am planning to come to that. To do that, I'm going to have to get a grant (laughs) because it's a little on the pricey side. And I want to, you know, I really want to come and I actually want to spend a couple of months in England because I'm working on the Mm -hmm. sequel to these novels and I I would like to do a little more environmental research because that to me is the best idea. You know, like it's not, like I say, it's not necessary. Sharon K. Penman would say, I'm being foolish, you can do it all on the internet, right? But no, uh, or you great. can do it all by by re reading or whatever. But for me, I I like to walk the walk. You know, like I like to walk around Absolutely. in the area and get the feeling of it, even though it isn't the 13th century anymore. You know, Um well, in some still parts feel, Italy,
0: it still is.
1: Is that is, and and in I some mean, parts of Wales, like in, that, <laughs> in the the front of our sheep farm, there was this sort of stone thing. You know, like it was on the ground. It was kind of like a a blueprint or something it was weird and we were looking at it and i asked the farmer i said what is this and he said oh you know that that was the uh the in in circa 1100 you know and i'm like really because <laughs> like the oldest thing where i live was 1880 right the oldest wow. standing buildings here like yeah. there was life before that but there wasn't a lot of uh, of remains like there's petroglyphs and things like that but really in terms of architecture in terms of physical buildings not a lot, you know, uh, from beyond, and even eighteen. There isn't much left from eighteen eighty, for that matter. You know what I mean. So, like something from eleven hundred that's in my front yard.
0: <laughs> go to Pisa. So cool, right? Go, go to Pisa. Yeah. Go to Pisa because the 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 basilica and the the bell tower, which is the Leaning Tower of Pisa, they were built in the twelfth century.
1: Yeah, I mean, like right, just, and you can just, just walk to there look and walk at around
0: it. and go, yeah, yeah, it's amazing. And, and, and Italy's full and, of places like that.
1: Like like I say, the, what gave me this entire no- novel series was standing on that walkway, looking out and right. thinking, wow, I wonder what that would have been like, you know. Um, had I not been there, it never would have come this. It, this would not have happened, you know. It just sure. wouldn't have. So, yeah. so I, the best idea I've had this year that I intend to act on
0: right, is that okay. I'm coming back to do some environmental research there
1: and to take this incredible medieval cooking class in person.
0: <laughs> well, okay, let's. I, I won't give out the details of the class because I don't want it to sell out before you can get your grant sorted out. Yeah, because that would be unfair. Right. But um, uh, excellent. So, so. The idea that you're going to act on that is you're going to come to the UK and take a medieval, to to take a medieval cookery class. That's That's, right. That's brilliant. That's my Um, You might find one of uh, my previous podcast episodes interesting. It's with Monica Gordio, who is a, um, she's an expert in medieval cookery and she's in, um, just outside Boston, which it's. Given Canadian distances, it's not that much closer than Newcastle, but it's probably a lot cheaper to get to. So you might you might find you can you can do some preparatory cookery classes with her first. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you very much indeed for joining me today, Marie. It's been lovely to meet you.
1: Yeah, it's been great. Thank you. And thanks, you know, for doing all that research to do the interview <laughs> in the first place. It's great.
0: Ah, it's all part of the service. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Marie. You can find the episode show notes at swordschool.com forward slash podcast. While you are there, you can sign up to my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my book, Sword Fighting for Writers, Game Designers and Martial Artists. The mailing list is mostly a weekly newsletter, which includes some cool stuff about swords, usually, and links to various things that I have done or am doing and generally keeps you up to date on what's going on in the guy universe. You can unsubscribe at any time, and I promise you I do not take that personally. I unsubscribe from mailing lists all the time, and I'd be astonished if anyone even notices. So, if you fancy a bunch of cool sword stuff in your inbox every week, do sign up. I'd like to thank my patrons on Patreon for their kind support of the show. It lets me know that you care about the show and want it to continue. Running this podcast is by no means free. Obviously, I pay for transcriptions, I pay for hosting, I pay for all sorts of other things as well. And the patrons support that by their generosity. You can support the show for as little as a dollar or two a month, or as much as you feel moved to donate. It really does help. You can join us at patreon.com forward slash the sword guy for behind the scenes content and to submit your questions for future guests. My patrons get everything I do first and usually either free or at a significantly bigger discount than I offer anyone else. Thanks, as always, to Andrew Lawrence King for the Baroque Harp Accents, originally recorded for my Paradoxes of Defence audiobook project. This has been episode 99 of the show, which means next week we have episode 100. And as I did for episode 50, I have invited a past guest back onto the show, but this time the roles are reversed and they will be interviewing me. I asked Ariel Anderson of episode 93. I invited her because I was sure it would be fun. And I was absolutely right. We had a blast chatting away for a couple of hours. And you get to listen in on that conversation next week. You don't want to miss it. So subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast from. And while you're there, if you have an extra minute, please do leave a review. It really does help. Thanks for listening. And I will see you next week. Bye.